Okay, well, good evening, everybody. My name is Robin Archer, and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. Um, and I'm absolutely delighted. Indeed, it's an honour to introduce our speaker today, Mary Robinson. Um, Mary Robinson's had a remarkable impact on an extraordinary range of areas of public life in the law, in academia, in politics and in international relations. She was elected the President of Ireland in 1990 and served there for some seven years before then serving as the UN High Commissioner on Human Rights. But by then she'd already established a powerful voice and impact on the question of human rights in a range of different arenas. She was a barrister in Ireland, in England, and also before European courts. She was an academic of significant note at Trinity College Dublin, where she later became Chancellor. And I believe you've also taught in Colombia and South Africa and various other institutions. Um, and as a member of the Irish Senate, as a legislator. Amongst the numerous honours she's got, I'm not going to list them all because she's promised me that she'll cut me off if I do. Um, I think it's worth noting that she received the US Presidential Medal of Freedom um, from Barack Obama. It's worth noting especially because I think it's right to say that during your time as Human Rights Commissioner, relations with the United States were not entirely smooth at all times. In the last year. In the last year. In the, in, in the last year. Um, she was also awarded Amnesty International's um, Ambassador of Conscience Award and, and many other awards, as I've said. More recently, her focus has been largely about questions of climate change, and it's on those questions that she's going to speak to us tonight. Um, she's served as the UN General Secretary, Special Envoy in that area, and she's established the Mary Robinson Foundation, which is dealing in particular with questions of climate justice. So um, our speaker's going to speak for about 30 minutes, and then there's going to be 15 minutes of chair-led discussion. That means I get to ask questions, and then after that you'll all get to ask questions. But before any of that happens, can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Her Excellency Mary Robinson. Thank you very much, and good evening. Uh, it's a great pleasure to return to LSE and to take part in this program of the Ralph Miliband uh, program. And uh, basically, I want to speak to you today about climate justice, and more specifically, the urgent need for innovation in turbulent and troubling times, which I know is the overall theme you've been talking about. Now, when I say the words innovation, I think some of you probably roll your eyes. I could almost see some of you rolling your eyes, wondering where this was going to go. As well you might, because the term has become a labored catchphrase for a modern society that assumes newer, faster, more productive, and more efficient is better. What's more, we could be forgiven for viewing innovation as a concept confined to the world of technology. Human ingenuity channeled to create automated solutions to life's challenges. But let's go back to the root, innovare. The Latin term innovare, the stem of innovate, means to change or to reform. 
and can be understood as a much broader societal concept. The need to change from business as usual could not be more urgent. The commitments that governments made to reduce emissions under the Paris Climate Agreement aren't sufficient, even if fully implemented, to stay within the frame of being well below 2 degrees Celsius of warming and working for striving for 1.5 degrees Celsius. Instead, we're on course at the moment for a 3 degrees Celsius of warming or worse, and this would be catastrophic. So let's think about that. You know, I, I just said that as a simple sentence, but yeah, let's think about it. Um, let's think about it in human terms. Part of the turbulence in recent years has been caused by climate disruption, and yet we're only at one degree of warming, um, one degree Celsius of warming. Listening to climate scientists, and I hope you've had the opportunity here in LSE to listen to some climate scientists describe a three-degree or a four-degree world is very scary. Yet it could be the world of our children and grandchildren. I have six grandchildren. I think a lot about them. They're aged from 14 down to six months. So they'll be in their 30s and 40s in 2050. They'll share the world with nine plus billion other people. How will that world feed itself? How will it have enough water? How will it have social cohesion if we continue the way we're going? That's a question we should all be asking ourselves and thinking about. You know, faced with this kind of existential threat, that's what I call it, an existential threat, because the threat to life itself and how we maintain it and how we maintain social order of any kind. Faced with this kind of existential threat, we need a different mindset for all decision makers, a mindset based on our interdependence and the need for global solidarity and empathy in averting this unacceptable future. It's tempting to assume that technological innovation will solve the climate crisis and save humanity. I think this would be to misdiagnose the situation we find ourselves in. We've reached this point because our technological advancement has far outpaced the evolution of empathy and solidarity within our global society. It's this imbalance that must be addressed to ensure that we leave a safer and fairer world to future generations. One of your own LSE alumni, Sir David Attenborough, and I'm a great fan of his, as I think most of us are, speaking about the environmental crises we face said, and I quote him, many individuals are doing what they can, but real success can only come if there's a change in our societies and in our economies and in our politics. It's these changes that would represent true innovation, the innovation required to achieve climate justice. In recent months, we've witnessed an unprecedented pattern of climate catastrophes around the world, which are in keeping with the scientific predictions of increased frequent and severe weather events exacerbated by climate change. In, in the late summer, over 1,000 people were killed and another 41 million were directly impacted 
by floods and, and landslides resulting from torrential monsoon rains in India, Nepal and Bangladesh. In Kenya, a three-year-long drought has affected 5.6 million people, with 2.6 million facing severe food insecurity. In the Caribbean, hurricanes, including Irma, the largest Atlantic hurricane on record, overwhelmed the island states, rolling back decades of development. The profound injustice of climate change is that those who are most vulnerable in society, no matter the level of development of the country in question, will suffer most. People who are marginalized or poor, women and indigenous communities, are being disproportionately affected by climate impacts. We need a climate justice movement. Speaking up for people who have the least capacity to protect themselves, their families, their homes, and their incomes from the impacts of climate change, and indeed climate action policies that are not grounded in human rights. These are also the people who have the hardest time rebuilding their lives in the wake of more frequent and intense disasters. They don't have access to insurance, savings, or other livelihood options necessary to build resilience. In many cases, families have lost everything. And we see this now even in rich countries, even in countries where people call themselves American, like Puerto Rico. The Puerto Ricans are American, and yet there are many Puerto Ricans tonight who go to bed crying in the dark and wondering, has the world abandoned them? It's amazing. Climate justice links human rights and development to achieve a human-centered approach, safeguarding the rights of the most vulnerable people and sharing the burdens and benefits of climate change and its impacts equitably and fairly. Climate justice is informed by science, responds to science, and acknowledges the need for equitable stewardship of the world's resources. Climate justice is itself an innovative concept. It transforms climate change from a discourse on greenhouse gases and melting ice caps into a civil rights movement with the people and communities most vulnerable to climate impacts at its heart. A civil rights movement. The emerging climate justice movement has, over the past decade, made significant strides in influencing the international response to climate change. In 2011, the year after my foundation was founded, we undertook a baseline study to gauge the status of climate justice in discourse around climate change and policymaking. It was a niche um, idea used by certain elements of civil society, used quite a lot by left-wing civil society, used by India to talk about fairness in atmospheric space. Bolivia was the only country using it in the UN context of conferences on climate, etc. Very much a minority sport, as they say. In 2015, after the Paris Agreement, we repeated this process, and the findings demonstrated that climate justice had shifted from the fringes of the discourse on climate change in 2011 to being a central theme used by governments, heads of state, academics, lawyers, scientists, and faith leaders um, by, um, by the end of that um, year. So I'd like to propose three innovative concepts which, if realized, would greatly enhance the climate action and advance climate justice. These are, first of all, committing to reach the furthest behind first, 
then augmenting the legal system to ensure it is fit to respond to the climate crisis, and thirdly, enduring decision-making, uh, ensuring sorry, decision-making considers the needs of future generations. So let's begin with reaching the furthest behind first. In adopting the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development with its 17 Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, the 193 countries of the UN General Assembly made the following pledge, and I quote, As we embark on this great collective journey, we pledge that no one will be left behind. Recognizing that the dignity of the human person is fundamentally, sorry, the dignity is, fundament, is fundamental, we wish to see the goals and targets met for all nations and peoples and for all segments of society, and we will endeavor to reach the furthest behind first. That phrase, we will endeavor to reach the furthest behind first, first time I've ever seen that in a UN document. I've seen nobody should be left behind. That's been frequently quoted. But reaching the furthest behind first changes things a bit. Then you're targeting, then you're focusing, then you have a plan, then you actually know who it is that you want to reach. Significantly, unlike their predecessors, the Millennium Development Goals, the MDGs, which focused on challenges in developing countries, the SDGs are for all nations. They encompass a wide range of goals, including tackling climate change, reducing inequality, and ensuring universal access to sustainable energy. The Sustainable Development Goals will be the vehicle through which the Paris Agreement will be implemented at country level. It's only through solidarity with those furthest behind that we can tackle climate change while ensuring a right to development is realized for all people. <coughs> the truth is, the truth of this is starkly borne out by current levels of energy poverty globally. <coughs> Sorry, I'm suffering from what <coughs> we all suffer from at this time of the year. Cheers. <laughs> um, the truth of this is starkly borne out by the current levels of energy policy globally. There are over one billion people, as you know, living without access to electricity. They never switch a switch. And for me, this is an appalling failure of human solidarity. Energy is the engine of development. It brings life-transforming benefits. Lighting for schools, functioning health clinics, pumps for water and sanitation, cleaner indoor air due to a decrease in cooking on open fires, and greater income-generating opportunities. It's imperative that all people have access to productive energy. Climate change requires us to fundamentally rethink how we power our, our societies. <coughs> All right. Our tried and tested development paradigm is totally unsustainable. The overriding priority for developing countries is development. And development requires energy, both on-grid and off-grid. If affordable, sustainable alternatives aren't made available, developing countries will turn to fossil fuels as the only option available to them. This is completely understandable. They need to lift their people out of poverty, improve public services, and power their economies, just as the developed world has done. However, this would rapidly deplete what's left 
of the global carbon budget and render all efforts um, at climate mitigation futile. We would be on course for a future marked by catastrophe, climate change and unimaginable human suffering. Developed countries need to accelerate their own plans for a carbon neutral future, but they cannot simply insist that poorer countries refrain from using fossil fuels on account of climate change. Instead, they must provide feasible alternatives in the spirit of global solidarity and self-interest. All countries need to work together to enable an inclusive transition, one which prioritizes the needs of those furthest behind and ensures all people benefit from the technologies developed to pioneer sustainable development pathways. Another important point is that we must listen to and learn from the communities living on the front lines of climate change. They're actually the experts. Practically, this means transforming our institutions of government so as to enable all people to participate in the decisions that affect their lives. We must bridge the divide between com communities on the front lines of climate impacts and the decision makers who are shaping national and international responses on climate change. By ensuring that the voices of those for whom climate change is a part of their lived and lived experience are heard in the corridors of power, we can foster the empathy to act in solidarity. My foundation has brought a number of grassroots people to conferences on climate over the years, including the last conference recently in Bonn under the um, uh, presidency of Fiji. And we've watched these experts who know exactly what the issue is listen to bureaucrats talking about it and being absolutely shocked and, you know, kind of uh, just furious that somehow this isn't real. These people don't understand. They don't know. They don't know what we know, and they're not listening to us. And it's a very big um, issue and very big battle. We need to change the language we use. The right to participate in decision-making will be realized by reaching out to those most marginalized and building their capabilities to directly engage decision-makers. But this can't be done if the concepts being put forward seem impenetrable. The technical jargon of climate change decision-making, a world of mitigation, adaptation, market mechanisms, and nationally determined contributions is meaningless to most people and only serves to further alienate. In this, there's a role for institutions like the London School of Economics. We must develop new, inclusive ways of discussing climate change, rooted in our cultures and our shared identities. Your institution, with its diverse student body and rich history of engaging at the forefront of social sciences, can work to pioneer a new approach to communicating and engaging the public with issues of climate action. We must also be willing to learn from the experiences of those who understand the day-to-day -day reality of climate disruption and incorporate their traditional and indigenous knowledge into the global response on climate change. Local and indigenous women's voices tend to be absent from decision-making on climate change. In many parts of the world, women are responsible for most of the labor involved in growing crops and processing food after the harvest. If we wish to prioritize the needs of people most vulnerable to climate change, we must be willing to allow them to shape the solutions to the climate crisis. The second ovation, sorry, innovation relates to the rule of law. 
which will allow our institutions to more appropriately respond to the climate crisis. It's clear, once we understand climate change to be an issue of justice, that the rule of law will be central to combating the unfolding crisis. The rule of law can help to motivate more ambition in tackling the climate crisis. It protects those who are vulnerable to the impacts of climate change, and it can safeguard the rights of local defenders of land and water rights. And let me start with this last point. The urgency for faster climate action is increasing. However, climate action, and mitigation action in particular, is increasingly giving rise itself to human rights abuses. This can take many forms, from disregarding local communities and indigenous peoples' land rights to not consulting impacted groups in project development or allowing unsafe labor practices on large-scale projects. So those putting in clean energy are now part of the problem, not all of them, but those involved in particular in mega-projects that don't have that level of consultation, that don't have that level of concern. In 2016, Honduran indigenous leader Berta Cáceres was murdered after resisting the Aquazada um, hydroelectric dam on the Gualcaque River. Um, I was in Honduras shortly after her murder, and you know it was clear that um, this was an extraordinary um, uh, trauma for the whole community. It was hardly an isolated incident, just a well-publicized one. The Guardian and Global Witness are actively monitoring the devastating death toll of women and men who are being killed for standing up for their communities, land, water, or natural resources. In 2017 alone, 185 were killed. Killed. Many others were imprisoned, um, lost their homes, lost their livelihoods, were displaced, you know, suffered, but 185 were killed. The Special Rapporteur on Human Rights Defenders, Michael Forst, noted in his report on environmental protectors that, and I quote, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change (coughs) (coughs) has engendered high expectations among environmental human rights defenders around the world. That vision is doomed to fail if those individuals and groups on the front line of defending sustainable development are not protected at the national, regional, and international levels. We know that gaps exist in our legal frameworks. Work has been underway to identify and address the gaps for some time now. The Department of Law and the Grantham Institute here at LSE have been at the forefront of this investigation. The school contributed to the International Bar Association report published in 2014 on the impacts of climate change on human rights and the follow-up work on the report's recommendations to secure justice for those impacted by climate change. The report found that the current system of international law is not well suited to addressing climate justice. This is deeply troubling. The legal system we have now at international and domestic level is not equipped to deal with the scale of the challenge posed by climate change, potentially the biggest threat to human rights of the 21st century. The fragmented nature of the relevant legal regimes and their origins in most cases in a world before awareness of climate change means that reforms are needed to enable them to respond effectively and to deliver climate justice. A multilateral example of where the impacts of climate change must be integrated is in the current negotiations for a global compact on migration. We now know that climate change will be a driver 
of migration, a serious driver. We know that in some cases migration may be an adaptive strategy, and we know that there are unique human rights considerations in both these elements. Across all sectors, whether it be trade law or business and corporate law, employment law or energy law, climate change must be addressed as a cross-cutting issue to ensure existing legal frameworks are strengthened in a coherent and robust manner. Likewise, the continued development of climate legislation at the national and sub-national level will be critical to anchoring the Paris commitments in law and ensuring a long-term approach to climate action. And progress is being made. The 2017 update of the LSE Grantham Institute report on global trends in climate change legislation and litigation indicates that there has been a 20-fold increase in the number of climate change or climate change-related laws worldwide in the past 21 years. And litigation can be a tool for the public to increase the ambition of climate policy, of national policy. As we witnessed, um, in particular in the Netherlands in 2015, where the Hague District Court agreed with the claimant Urgenda, an environmental non-governmental organization, and ruled that by 2020, the Dutch government has to reduce the country's emissions by at least 25% from 1990 levels, rather than its own projected uh, 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 commitment to 17% reduction. And um, that was a very interesting case because Dutch law regards international law as very binding internally, and uh, it meant that the case could have um, the impacts that it has had. Um, there are more and more cases worldwide um, where countries are now being brought more to face um, a legal uh, challenge. Uh, for me, perhaps the most inspiring case is the constitutional uh, climate lawsuit, Juliana, against the United States, filed in 2015 by a group of 21 children and young adults against the United States government. Their complaint asserts that through the government's positive actions that cause climate change, um, it has violated the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty and property, as well as failed to protect essential public trust resources. And the case is expected to begin in February, to, be, to be, um, begin an argument at the US District Court of Oregon in Eugene. And this leads me to my final um, proposed innovation which, if implemented, could radically transform our political practices and decision-making processes. It's my firm belief that the needs of future generations should receive systematic consideration in present-day decision-making. There's no voice in the international system at the moment for the child born today and her children and grandchildren. No voice. Nobody speaks for that cohort the child born today and her children and grandchildren. Yet they are the generation who will be most affected by the decisions or lack of decisions taken today. We're custodians of our planet, a common home that by 2050 will include, as I said, some <coughs> 9 billion plus people. It's our duty to live in such a way that the precious life-sustaining environment which keeps us is passed to future generations in at least as healthy a state as we received it from those before us. To fulfill our role as custodians of the environmental system, we require the vision to see beyond the short-term political cycles 
and strive for intergenerational equity in our decision-making. Intergenerational equity, understood as fairness between generations, is a universal concept across the world and across cultures. It's not a new concept. According to part of the ancient great law of the Native American Uruguay people, and I quote, in every deliberation, we must consider the impact on the seventh generation. Similar sentiment has informed constitutions, international treaties, economies, religious beliefs, traditions, and customs for centuries. Over 200 UN resolutions alone mention the well-being of future generations. Yet we have, for the most part, not been successful in putting the principle into practice. To do so in the current landscape would be both innovative and transformative. In some countries, like Wales and Hungary, there is an office that represents the interests of future generations in national decision-making. When viewed through an intergenerational lens, the urgent need to ensure sustainable development for all people and stabilize the climate becomes clear. Decisions taken today that undermine the well-being of future generations become inexcusable. Intergenerational equity can help to inform decision-making at the international level as well and provide a unifying focus for international negotiations. My foundation is currently working with member states, with the UN system, with civil society, to build momentum and support for the establishment of an office of global guardians for future generations under the United Nations. We believe that future generations require representation if their needs are to be given due consideration within the UN system, and that the only way to achieve this is to ensure there are representatives within the process to advocate on behalf of the generations yet to be born. In the lead-up to the um, Rio Plus 20 summit in 2012, um, there was discussion about the establishment of a commission or even high commissioner for future generations under the UN to represent and advocate for future generations. That had gained some support. However, the proposal wasn't adopted due to concern about the capacity to represent the needs of countries at different levels of development. And this, again, is understandable. If you have a lot of poor people at at critical levels of food insecurity, it seems as if this is a rich country idea. And that was what the concern was, that this was looking to the future, but what about the present? And what about the urgency of dealing with uh, acute poverty? So it's understandable. The task of protecting future generations must start with ensuring fairness and equality in the current one. We won't succeed in fighting climate change and securing a safer world for future generations without first ensuring that the dignity and rights of all people alive today are respected and protected. Advancing climate justice means ensuring that present generations can enjoy the full realization of their rights while safeguarding the Earth's resources for future generations. The Global Guardian's model would address this by being intentionally comprised of countries at different levels of development and in so doing help to advance the balance, uh, to balance the needs of current generations living in poverty and underdevelopment with the economic, social and environmental needs of future generations. Such a mechanism, if operationalized, would help to enhance mutual trust between member states as well as between the UN system and civil society by adopting a development-first approach to issues of intergenerational equity. 
in providing integrated, practical and implementable policy advice to member states, the guardians could assist in advancing intergenerational equity through the implementation of the 2030 Agenda. Let me emphasize again that the existential threat of climate change confronts us with our shared interdependence. I believe that there's an increasing awareness of our role as global citizens in the face of climate change and that the movement growing out of this is becoming an irresistible one. Paradoxically, paradoxically, the decision by President Trump that the United States would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement, which cannot, as you probably know, formally happen until the 4th of November 2020, and the next presidential election is the 3rd of November 2020, (laughs) Um, this galvanized a dynamic reaction at all levels in the United States. Cities, states, business, philanthropy, universities, and wider civil society combined on a declaration, we are still in. If you Google, we are still in, you'll see this enormous, broad um, coalition. And the declaration ends as follows, and I quote, It is imperative that the world know that in the United States, the actors that will provide the leadership necessary to meet our Paris commitment are found in city halls, state capitals, colleges and universities, investors and businesses. Together, we will remain actively engaged with the international community as part of the global effort to hold warming to well below 2 degrees Celsius and to accelerate the transition to a clean energy economy that will benefit our security, prosperity and health. In other words, what President Trump did was what so many of us had been trying to do and couldn't. We couldn't penetrate um, a kind of climate denial culture in the United States But now, everybody's talking about climate change. It's there at every level and everything. And there's a dynamic in every state in the United States. New York is going to sue oil companies. Los Angeles says, I think we'll sue oil companies too. Imagine, imagine. You know, everything has changed. And there's a whole dynamism. And it's happening all around the world. So let me conclude by agreeing with my good friend, Salim Huck from Bangladesh, who wrote a wonderful article um, entitled, Thank You, Mr. Trump, in which he pointed out, and I quote him, this is perhaps the most powerful aspect of the Paris Agreement, in that it links every citizen on the planet in a common enterprise with a common goal, with heads of state only the signatories on behalf of the people. The ball has been taken up by the people, and no head of state can take it back, not even President Trump. So the ball is in your court here in LSE, and it matters how you pick it up and respond. And I have every confidence in the contribution you can make and the leadership you can give on climate justice in the world today. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Um, As I said earlier, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions and then we're going to have plenty of time to um, turn to the audience. Um, Let let me just start with the the concept of climate justice, which obviously rests at the centre of of what you've said. I just wanted to get your reflections on the sense in which there might be some tension between those two concepts, because you started out by saying that there was a climate crisis which was 
a fundamental threat to social order, that it was almost an existential threat. Um, but, of course, demands for social justice often require entailing changes that involve risks and so on. So uh, concerns with order and safety, they've been the traditional preserve of conservative political movements. Concerns with social justice have been traditionally the concerns of progressive social movements. Is there some way in which this, this way of thinking about it is bringing them together, or is, that, uh, is there a tension there that needs to be explored between these two wings? I think it's an interesting question, and I think it's more probably a question at the moment of exploring the tensions, because on the conservative side, there is still a lot of denial, um, not just in the United States, as we know, um, or not, if not denial, unwillingness, certainly to accept the justice mm. dimension. So I think we need a climate justice movement, we're seeing it a beginning to emerge. It's absolutely critical that it increases and strengthens and, um, as I said, takes on this innovative um, societal idea um, that we are interdependent. I mean, I sometimes use um, a very simple way of describing this, but it it, it does cause you to think. Um, The Titanic... When the Titanic hit that ice block, it wasn't just those in steerage who went down. It was those in first class, if they couldn't get into the, um, the, the, the few boats that were available and so on. And um, the, uh, when, when we were working our way towards the Paris Climate Agreement, I attended a lot of um, the uh, discussions in the uh, uh, informal ministerial Uh, gatherings that the French presidency of Paris brought together, where you had the ministers from different perspectives um, speaking. It was very boring because everybody kept saying the same thing. But among the boring were people like Tony de Brum of the Marshall Islands saying, do you really want my country to completely disappear? Do you know that if we don't have 1.5 degrees in that text, my country's gone, my people are gone? Do you really want this? And it somehow, you know, it, it, it wore people down to um, a realization there had to be a sense of fairness in the agreement. And I don't know how many of you were uh, there when the gong came down on the um, Paris Climate Agreement. I was there on behalf of my foundation. And I will never forget it because I've attended a lot of climate agreements, and not just climate UN agreements. I've been a High Commissioner for Human Rights. I've done other things. And they can be very dull and, you know, not really very exciting. Um, Usually people are satisfied when an agreement is reached because it's often hard to reach an agreement. But this was different. This was so emotional. It began with clapping. And the clapping went on and on and on. And then it became cheering. And then it became hugging. And then it became crying. And I looked around and I saw all kinds of people from Al Gore to others and tears were coming because we knew that this was an incredible moment of solidarity. I'm not saying that the Paris Agreement is the greatest agreement ever. It's actually a weak agreement, but it's a fair agreement. That's the difference. It's fair to poor developing countries and small island states. 
It has 1.5 degrees. It has a very good preamble on human rights of all kinds. It has a commitment to be carbon neutral by the second half of the century. That's too late. It has to be by 2051 at the latest. You know, that is the second half of the century. As long as we make sure it's 2051 and no later, we will reach the 1.5 degrees. And now that's changed the whole dynamic. Countries are beginning to commit to being net zero. Universities are committing. Everybody's committing to, um, you know, at what stage, at what year. Christiana Figueres has her 2020 mission, and she's saying we have to do X by 2020 to be in place by 2050. And this has all changed that dynamic, which I hope partly answers your question, which I've completely forgotten at this point. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a very interesting answer. Um, Let me move on to something else. Um, it was it was striking sort of halfway through your talk that you referred to the climate justice movement as a civil rights movement. Mm. And, of course, this brings together two things that are very important to you personally. But I wanted to just reflect on that a bit more or ask you to reflect on it a bit more. I mean, when we make claims in the name of human rights, we know broadly who has standing, all the individual humans that are here on the planet with us. But as you yourself pointed out towards the end there are questions of intergenerational rights where we have to speak for people who are not present. And and you spoke for people in the future. Some people want to speak for people in the past as well, actually, which Mm. raises a similar question. Mm -hmm. But in a sense, the environmental problem goes even beyond that. It's, it's if you like, I don't know, do you know Dr. Zuss's book, The Lorax? Uh, you know, the, sort of, they, yes. they, they chop down yeah. the trees and yes. the Lorax pops out and he yes. says, I speak for the trees, yes. for the trees yes. have no voice. Yes. So in, in a yeah. sense, my question yeah. is, who is the Lorax? Yeah. Um, you know, you've set out guardians and yeah. so on, but, but, you know, who, how do we know that they have the standing to be the Lorax? That's, that's the question. Yeah, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I think the nearest we got to um, an intellectual discourse on this was, in fact, the encyclical um, uh, Laudato Si, mm-hmm. because it actually places it in our interdependence with our ecosystems, with nature, with animals, you know, um, that we're not separate and, 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 and different. And um, I, I thought, was, I mean, um, uh, I only read one other encyclical in full, and that was the one um, uh, when I was in college about um, banning contraceptives. Oh, and, you know, I, I had to read that because I was going to fight it for the rest of my life, right. you know. <laughs> but, um, but this encyclical, I find an incredible intellectual exercise in actually um, understanding these interconnections, these ecological interconnections, and um, being very tough on uh, some of the societal issues, which, which, um, which, which Pope Francis is. Um, but, um, I mean, I understand the difficulty in being abstract about future generations, which is why I tend to use that formula, which you've heard me use, and I use it all the time, and I use it always as the female child, the child born today, and her children and grandchildren. I think everybody can grasp that. I think that's something we can all understand. And they are going to be the most affected. And they could have an unlivable world. And who wants that? I mean, uh, surely, surely we're human enough to say that that actually matters a lot. And we have to have that voice. And that voice should be very close to scientists. You know, should be um, gathering in. Um, you know, it, it just needs... Um, a small presence of um, guardians of future generations, probably balancing north and south, male and female, maybe youth and 
and, and um, intergenerational in, in that sense. But the focus should be on let's go beyond the 2030 agenda. Um, a lot of politicians think 2030 is way, way into the future. It's not. It's actually quite a short space of time. We've, done, we've had a couple of years of it already. Um, we need to think um, we need to really be thinking very carefully about 2050, 2075, you know, uh, how, the, how the world will be and, and listen to um, the scientists. And in particular, I mean, um, when you talked about the um, human rights movement, um, we now have um, a gender action plan of the climate um, uh, system, which we never had before. We have human rights much more in there. Um, we have it in the preamble and we're working to tread that through the system so that thing. And the reason for it is very clear, as I mentioned earlier, that we're going to get more um, urgent about where the world is um, and uh, climate change posing a real threat and security threat and defense forces are going to marshal and we're going to hear more about geothermal uh, geo, um, um, solutions, etc. And um, all of this is going to mean that we need to remind ourselves that climate action must respect human rights and gender in, you know, in going forward, and that it's not doing so at the moment. We have a new industry, which is the renewable energy industry, and it's making a lot of mistakes with mega projects, and we need to recognize this and face it and get guidelines for the um, renewable energy industry. Hmm. Again, I don't know if I've answered your question, but well, I mean, it's, it's a it's it's a big it's a big question that I don't think it can easily be answered in one go. I mean, let, let me just come back on it very briefly. I mean, we have a long tradition in, in in Western political thought of people claiming to be the guardians of the past. They're typically aristocrats or um, churches and so on. And amongst progressives, there's a degree of scepticism about that claim. These proposals require guardians for the future. Why shouldn't there be an equal degree of scepticism towards that sort of proposal? How do we know that they're really the guardians of the future? Well, I think that was the scepticism in mm. the lead-up to the Rio summit. Mm. Um, it was both the scepticism and a, a, um, a sense that this was a rich country's idea. But actually, when you look at it, it's not. Um, because this is a very real um, existential threat that mm. we face. Um, look at the science. Um, there is no doubt we are not on course for a safe world. And um, uh, it is uh, the generations born today and their children and grandchildren that will um, suffer the most, um, as the youngest of you in this audience and your children will suffer more. And uh, it's my generation and those before me who have completely failed and are still failing to take seriously enough and that issue. Thanks. Just one last question, and I'm going to turn it over. I mean, the, the, the present moment is one marked by a lot of concern about economic instability, the global financial crisis, and all the things that have flown from that. What do you think the effect of that has been on the campaign for climate justice? I mean, has it got any... Has it been helpful in any way, or has it largely just reduced the salience of the demands for climate change to be addressed? Well, I do acknowledge that we have a lot of uh, problems uh, in our world of populism, of nationalism, of identity, of um, President Trump in particular, uh, you know, um, uh, America first. Uh, I think the counter to that that has been quite effective 
is the idea of, um, you know, uh, make the planet great again. And that was the thrust of the uh, um, summit in Paris that uh, um, um, President Macron um, hosted. Um, and it, w- it was an interesting summit um, because it was not a UN summit. It was a, um, led by France and with a lot of support from other heads of state and government, from business, from the World Bank, from the UN, etc. But they were um, uh, focusing on um, how does um, the dynamism in the world as a whole respond to the Paris Climate Agreement. And it was building on a lot of climate action that had been developed uh, from the, basically from the summit that Ban Ki-moon had organized in New York in um, 2014. Uh, there were 400,000 people who marched in the street and had marched under banners of climate justice, uh, mainly. Um, and the indigenous peoples had the prime spot in that march. And I remember marching um, side by side with uh, Gru Brundtland. We were there as elders together. And we had our banner, etc. And then I saw, not very far away, um, uh, some women together and I really wanted to be behind their banner because it was angry grannies. And I felt that's, that's really what I mean, you know. Um, but uh, but um, uh, that movement of climate action got into the system in Lima, even more so in Marrakesh. Um, it was sort of um, a recognition that we need broad coalitions um, where um, everybody takes the action that they can take. <coughs> <coughs> to achieve broad goals. And out of the planet, uh, sorry, the One Planet Summit, there are 12 significant coalitions. One of them deals with the Caribbean islands. A lot more support and money for climate-smart development in the Caribbean because they've been so devastated. It won't be perfect, it won't be necessarily, you know, but at least that's there. What Macron said um, during the summit, and I was there, when he said it, be careful what you commit to because we will hold you accountable. So we have a a sort of parallel system at the moment where you have the French deciding, you know, um, the Paris Agreement was a good thing for the French. We're going to continue this now. Um, I don't think before he became president of France that Macron was particularly focused on climate. I, I just don't think he was. He was focused on economics and other things. Um, but he has become very focused on climate. And um, <clears throat> there's now um, an intention to have a, um, a summit each year to um, have accountability. <coughs> I think I'm running out of time. <laughs> to have accountability um, for commitments made. You know, a lot of commitments are made politically and they're not implemented and nobody follows it. This process is supposed to be a bit more rigorous and a bit more disciplined and it parallels the process under the UNFCCC system which will be the rules which have to be adopted for transparency and accountability in increasing the ambition of all countries on the commitments they made pre-Paris which are not enough. I mean, they will leave us with at least a three-degree world, which is catastrophic. So everybody has to step up. And it's happening. I mean, um, countries are 
um, in investing in electric vehicles. I mean, if Christiana Figueres was sitting here where I'm sitting, she would give a very positive view of where things are at the moment. Um, uh, I tend to want to be on the, <laughs> the justice side and the side of the most marginalised, and it's not great for them. So I can't give that. But, you know, there, there is a, a very positive um, story that can be told of how um, uh, business in particular and um, um, uh, the trade union movement with just transition, uh, the, everybody's moving um, in, a, in a much more determined way to try to resolve this issue. Thanks. Well, look, there's so many issues that your talk's raised. Um, I, I want to turn it over to our audience now. Um, do, do please just um, indicate if you want to speak, and when I call you, could you just say who you are and where you're from so we, so we all know? And easy questions, please. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to pause for a minute while these people move out. Um, Okay, so um, th this uh, this gentleman with the brown... Oh, wait for the microphone, too. Hi, it's more of a yellow shirt, but I'll let you away with that. Um, hi, Mary, how are you doing? Uh, my name is Mark McCormick. Um, I'm from Mullingar. Um, okay, good. <laughs> so, uh, we're, we're on a good footing there. Um, we went to a play during the week, Network, and the point of it was there was a line in it which is, I'm angry as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And it's what Brian Cranston tries to make the people of America feel. How do you make the man on the street feel about climate change? Uh, similar in a way to David Attenborough's done with plastic over the last couple of weeks. You see there's a tipping point there. There's a movement. People actually now are talking about it. Um, how, how, do, how do you make Joe Soap, so to speak, feel about climate change and want to make it a, a change in their life? I think it's a very good question. And uh, I think my immediate answer is we need to tell stories. We need to tell far more stories of what's really happening. And I have a book actually coming out in next early September that Bloomsbury are publishing on climate justice, resilient stories, bottom-up, what people are doing and how they're doing it. And you know, I've had help from a writer to help me to... I can tell a story, but when I come to write it down, it's not always as good. So anyway, but um, these are fantastic stories of... Um, action on the ground against all the odds. But one of them is a story of a president, um, for, the former president of Kiribati, um, who faces uh, losing his, um, I, uh, his country if we go above 1.5, a bit like the Tony de Brum story that I mentioned earlier. And he tells his story very vividly in that book. And I think this is what we need to know. We need to make it personal. Um, uh, uh, I, 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 I firmly believe that um, uh, you know, because this was about science and about environment and about melting glaciers and polar bears, they, uh, people just distanced. Um, we need to hear the stories, and they need to be stories not just uh, because uh, you know, there are places that are the canaries in the mine, which are you know, um, the Sami people in northern Sweden are feeling it very badly. Alaska in the United States is feeling it very badly. You have hurricanes and people get the quick... The, um, but actually, it's happening all over the world. And um, we need to hear these stories more and more, I believe, so that we understand and then it's personal and we get working on it. OK, um, this person here with the yellow scarf, please. Um, hi, Mrs. Robinson. You're getting all of the Irish tonight. It's oh, Sheila O'Callaghan from Cork. Um, <laughs> fantastic um, talk so far. 
I want to follow up on what the gentleman just asked behind, and I think as a, an Irish person and very involved in Ireland as well, not just on an international stage, surely there should be programmes in school, there should be a class on climate change in school, teaching young people, telling these stories, having books on it, so they grow up with knowing about this problem. Um, I've worked for a long time in the Middle East as well, and I think we've become sort of um, immune to what's happening between Israel and Palestine. This is a problem that's been there for 50 years, but we're no longer as conscious about it. And I think the same will happen with climate change if we don't have programmes in place and education. I do agree with you, but actually I wouldn't confine it to the climate. I think the real educational tool is the Sustainable Development Goals and somehow translating those into something that five, six, seven-year-olds can grasp, 10, 11, 12-year-olds at a certain further stage, and then it becomes, um, and, and it's all about living sustainably. You know, what do we do so that we um, live in harmony with the ecosystems that sustain us and that must sustain future generations, and we must stop undermining them? And plastics is a good example. You know, focus on health, focus on air quality, focus on these things helps. Um, but I do... But I, I, I think we should. I really, I really think we should. Um, and uh, we have now an agenda for the world, and it is the 2030 agenda with the 17 sustainable goals. It applies to all countries, and every country should be addressing how to move on that. And secondly, and, the, and countries are reporting on what they're doing on it, but it's, it's somehow still not, uh, not a... No reporting to the, a high-level political forum in July in the UN system. So it's ambassadors of the UN reporting and, you know, goodness knows um, just what, what, what depth of um, understanding. But let's start with schools and education and colleges and universities. And I, I, I actually think universities um, have to take a big step forward on this issue. I'm very much in favour of divestment and reinvestment by universities. I'm glad it's happening. Is LSE divesting? Has it divested? Oh, don't look at me. Look at you. Trinity in Dublin is divesting. Oh, well, there you are. By virtue of it. And students in Trinity are very engaged in sustainable issues. So. Uh, I'll take that question on notice, as they say. Um, I just want to see if anybody up there wants to ask a question too. Don't, don't, so, yeah. so this, this woman on the third row, please. Um, hi, good evening. Um, thank you for the really enlightening talk. Um, I'm not Irish, but I do have some questions. And, um, Where are you from? The f- I have two questions. I'm from China. From China, good. Yeah. Um, the first question is, what do you think of um, the um, instruments that, pe- that are trending, sort of trending right now, like um, green finance? Um, actually, China, I, I believe, is... Um, a leader in green finance in this respect. And the second question would be, um, could you give us some examples of um, engagement with local communities mm. for um, fighting for climate justice? Okay. And how do you think these um, solutions can be replicated in different contexts and scaled up? Okay. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Two very good questions. Um, I think the only way I can really... Um, answer the first question is um, by reflecting on what the implications are for climate finance of the decision by President Trump to pull the United States out. We know it can't happen until um, the 4th of um, 
uh, November 2020, if it happens then, but it has already had serious implications. Because of the dynamism um, that it sparked in states of the United States, cities, business, uh, universities, philanthropy, civil society, etc., it's predicted to be quite likely that the United States will meet its targets um, that Obama committed the United States to um, of reducing emissions, partly because, frankly, in the scale of things, since the United States was the biggest emitter historically and is still one of the largest emitters, they weren't very ambitious, so they're doable. And it's felt that the United States will do this through this we are still in coalition and everybody doing their bit. What is missing and what is really serious is the support for developing countries through climate finance, support for the Green Climate Fund, support for other finance. And it is true that um, China is providing quite a bit of, of that finance. And I think other countries, Europe and other countries, are going to have to step up more to the plate on providing climate finance um, because uh, we're expecting or, you know, we're kind of, asking developing countries to develop without emissions. No country, China didn't develop without emissions. No country has developed without emissions. And it can only be done if we are ready to provide the investment, the transfer of technology, the skills transfer, the working on it, and a lot of it can also be off-grid in communities, etc., to provide the power for communities. So it's it's a double um, uh, approach. So that's um, what I feel on the green finance side. Um, on the engagement with local communities, let me just tell you one story because I'm, I'm familiar with um, quite a bit of it. Um, the IFC of the World Bank and Danish support in particular, the Danish Pension Fund and I think Danish other support and others, um, provided major support for the largest wind farm in Africa, which is located in Kenya. But they located it on land that belonged to pastoralists, that they had been um, herding their goats and their camels on for centuries. And nobody said a word. Nobody knew and nobody paid any attention to these pastoralists. Fortunately for these pastoralists, they have got legal advice and they've taken an action. And this wind farm has not come on stream. It's now locked in litigation. I know one of these pastoralists very well, um, Agnes, um, she's a Maasai, and she's part of this community. And she was with us in uh, the recent COP, and she's very articulate and very clear. She says, we would not object at all to clean energy. Why would we? We want clean energy like anybody else. But this project wasn't going to give us any energy. It was all going to be geared to the cities and um, on you know, um, lines um, to, to serve the communities. And yet they've taken our land, they've uh, made it much more difficult for us, etc., So, you know, that's a good example of um, where, because of um, access to legal advice, um, that community was able to take action. And more and more communities are taking action to um, assert their rights and to prevent um, the kind of of, um, really serious violations of human rights and human rights abuses and gender uh, abuses that are going on. Um, So um, thank you for your questions. Okay, I'm just going to go over here. I think um, this gentleman at the back. Hi there. Um, my name is Kieran. I'm really sorry. I'm also from Ireland. Um, Don't be sorry. Like, be proud. <laughs> <laughs> proud, proud. Um, my question is about the Sustainable Development Goals and banded at the Paris Agreement. Um, 
The Millennium Development Goals were in large part not fulfilled, many of them weren't. As we move towards 2030 and the climate crisis works, and like this summer, as you mentioned, do you think these goals could be changed to bring everyone around the table again, maybe more specifications or acting on different fronts? Um, what I really mean is, if the course of action isn't working, if that's apparent in 2020, should we act again or should we just leave them as broad goals? Thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I was serving as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights in the year 2000. I was very pleased and excited by the Millennium Declaration of that year because it was full of human rights and gender language. And I was really, I felt... And then these eight goals were extrapolated in a kind of secret process. You know, I mean, Kofi Annan was involved in it, but, you know, it was kind of a very secret process. And it was a very little-known and little-supported process for quite a long time. Um, I remember President Bush would never mention, he was president at the time, would never mention the Millennium Development Goals, just as a matter of policy, you never mention them. Mind you, I don't think Trump will mention them, but anyway. <laughs> and, um, you know, they, they were very slow to take off. And then it was realized it is actually helpful to have global goals. And a lot can be done with global goals. And then you had broader alliances of governments with business in particular and with philanthropy and with communities and with, you know, um, just realizing that this is a way to help whether they're health goals or education goals. or It just it, it, it makes for um, an easier way. Now, when the Sustainable Development Goals were adopted by the 193 countries after a two-year negotiation, these were negotiated goals, they became the shared negotiated development agenda for what it's worth. Nothing's perfect. It's all voluntary. And, but... Um, there are coalitions around most of the goals and linking goals with one another, you know, linking um, goal five on gender equality with other goals. And, you know, uh, there's an attempt to say, don't just focus on one goal. Um, that's, that's a silo. Try and link the goals in, in, the, in the work that's been done. And there's a huge amount of interest um, in, um, you know, uh, seeing how these goals will, will, will address. Where I think we're falling down, if, interestingly, is the universities. Um, you know, this is the global development agenda now for our world. Um, LSE should have revised its whole curriculum. So should Trinity in Dublin. So should other universities. Um, I actually addressed um, the uh, uh, vice-chancellors and principals of universities here in the UK uh, quite recently on this subject and, and encouraged them and I got quite a tepid response. They were very focused on other things. You know, it was quite clear that uh, there were other issues that were bothering them more. I mean, they, they were polite, but I didn't think that I'd, you know, convince them, to say the least of it. And, you know, that's interesting. I mean, this should be the agenda now at all levels for um, uh, educating ourselves about how to live sustainably. No country in the world, basically, pretty well, is living sustainably with our ecosystems. You know, um, that's a serious issue. Okay. Um, th this person here with the... What... You. I don't know what colour your sweater... I, the, 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 the woman with the blonde hair, yep. <laughs> Hi there. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk. Um, my name's Sarah, I'm from London. Um, I just wanted to ask you, you mentioned business a couple of times through, through your talk, and I just wanted to ask 
what you see specifically as the role of business in the climate justice movement, um, not just in terms of you know putting pledges to their uh, carbon emissions and, and um, ambitions to be carbon neutral, but also in terms of the impacts that they have on communities in terms of employment um, and the sale of products and services? Well, thank you for the question. It is actually a very interesting area, and I can't deal with it fully in, in, in responding because it, 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 it's a very major um, area. Um, there is a very broad coalition that has been present at conferences on climate and increasingly also in the Sustainable Development Goals called We Mean Business. You can Google We Mean Business and you'll see. Within that We Mean Business, I have a particular relationship with um, a smaller group of business leaders who call themselves the B Team. And the B Team is we have no planet B, so business has to step up. And um, in the January before the Paris Agreement in 2015, January 2015, in, of all places, of course, Davos, the B team committed um, as leaders of business to be net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. They were the first group of, com of company leaders to say that. They included, you know, um, um, uh, well, uh, uh, you can Google the B team and you'll find out who the leaders are. Um, uh, Paul Pullman is, 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 is particularly involved. And um, uh, now we mean business as a whole has adopted this kind of standard. There's a link across being made to guidelines on business and human rights, the UN guidelines on business and human rights, and guidelines on um, 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 ethical investing, basically. Um, but particularly the guidelines on business and human rights lend themselves to businesses looking at their carbon footprint, looking at the, and, and actually having um, uh, you know, working the, um, the system of the um, guidelines on business and human rights. Those guidelines are threefold, you know, just to explain briefly. First of all, there's an, um, a responsibility of governments um, to protect people from violation of their human rights by business. This was never stated as clearly before, but in 2006, the Human Rights Council clearly adopted that part of the framework. The second part was all businesses have a responsibility to respect all human rights. Now, respect is less than protect, but they have to respect. In order to respect, you must have a due diligence approach, know what's happening not only in your business but in your supply chain, and right the whole way and work on that. The same applies to your carbon footprint and climate. You can use the um, uh, business and human rights guidelines as a very good way of ensuring that as a business you're doing the right thing by climate. That, that's basically where the, where the argument is at the moment. And, <laughs> and um, um, uh, you know, um, uh, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> Okay, yes, someone up there, please. Um, the woman in the red. Hi, sorry, Irish again. Um, my name is Lisa, and I actually work in catastrophe modelling, so this is kind of more the social side of, of what sorry, I can Sorry, I can't quite hear you. Hi, can you hear me now? No. Uh, can you just speak a bit louder? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm Lisa, and I work in catastrophe modelling, so okay. this is the social side of, I guess, what I do. But I've got a couple of questions that are kind of all tied in. So my feeling is that 
it's to do with some of the actual political terms that if you see in, in businesses, it's the CEOs only have a five-year agenda instead of having this 20, this 25-year, and they're not worried about the future generations. They're just trying to get <coughs> maximum effect for while they're in office. Mm. Um, I don't know if you think that there should be a bigger call on the UN to kind of mandate across Europe and across other governments to make this a priority for business and for their planning at even a micro level, not just kind of national level and then my second question is um, if you were to give everybody in this room a challenge some kind of micro challenge that you think we could uh, achieve what challenge would you give everybody in the room yeah <laughs> to take away from this evening to yeah. like where do you think we could be most effective yeah. at our level on our general day-to-day -day basis what could you ask of us okay well on the um, on the first um, point it is true that business has a very short horizon in a way, um, and it's often quarterly accounts. That's the shortest, um, and having to have those um, looking profitable because that's what shareholders and stakeholders ever want. Um, but I think increasingly business is now prepared to make the commitment to going carbon neutral, like the companies that I described. I mean, more and more, the non-fossil fuel companies are doing this. Even some of the fossil fuel companies are deciding when they will get out of fossil fuel. I mean, it's an interesting perspective. So I think that is changing. I think the, um, uh, it depends on a kind of leadership, etc. and I, I, I certainly think it needs encouraging, and I think the guidelines for business and human rights are helpful, etc. Um, on your second point, um, thank you very much. I love challenging. I love challenging any kind of audience, especially a mainly young audience. My goodness, do I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to get into a 1.5 degree mindset. A mindset where the world is not going to go above 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. You've got to walk the talk. You've got to know what your carbon footprint is and do something about it. You've got to start to become part of a movement with others. You've got to find out what others are doing to encourage, etc. Um, this is what we need. Um, uh, and uh, it's that 1.5 degree mindset. Um, look at what Christiana Figueres is doing with our Mission 2020. Look what so many others are doing. Look at what um, the We Are Still In coalition is doing um, in the United States. Um, get active. Um, and I'm sure um, there are a lot of people active here in LSE um, in various ways. But um, uh, the fight, I mean, the, the um, IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, these scientists from all over the world um, will produce a report this year on 1.5. Um, the interesting thing is uh, that many scientists had more or less given up on 1.5 degrees. They were very surprised, some of them, when the Paris negotiations required the IPCC to produce a report. My small foundation has been inundated by requests from scientists for help with how do we stay at 1.5 degrees. Um, you know, it's a very interesting challenge, and it really is what we all need to do, is to get into that mindset of determination, because then small island states won't have to go under. Um, the, the disruption of climate will continue to be getting a bit worse, because we're only at one degree at the moment, and look at what's happening. So, you know, it's not, this is serious. You know, we're going to have more and worse hurricanes, worse drought, worse flooding, you know, and 
the more vulnerable countries are, the worse it will be, the more vulnerable parts of countries are, but it will affect all over the world. It is affecting at the moment. Look at California. You know, fires in a rich part of Santa Barbara or whatever, and then immediately after that, because of the fires depleting the uh, trees, uh, the mudslides. You know, um, nobody's going to be easily going to escape. So having a 1.5 degree mentality of action and working out from there, what can I do? And what, um, uh, One of the stories in the book, I'll be um, um, the, the climate justice stories in, uh, that will come out in September, is about a woman in um, Australia um, who um, was a businesswoman, middle class in Sydney. Her husband was involved in teaching on environmental issues, so she began to hear this. Uh, she was involved in cosmetics, a cosmetics company, and a lot of her um, approach was the packaging. The packaging of the cosmetics was everything to sell them. And um, she realized that she needed to listen more, and you know, she, it began to enter into her ear. So she decided to try to reduce her own carbon footprint, and she was very pleased with what she managed to do. And she said, well, you know, this is the, this is the answer. I'll get other women to do likewise. And she, she um, uh, launched, about 10 years ago now, the One Million Woman Project for a million, um, mainly Australian, but anybody else on her website who tuned in, um, who would reduce their carbon footprint. And it was very hard. It didn't work smoothly. And she's had a lot of... And she's now got more support, and she's got a better app, and she's working it, and she's got, I don't know... Certainly, more than eighty thousand, probably you know, maybe more than a hundred or thousand women who are regularly um, connecting with this website. Now, that's one person, just an ordinary businesswoman who converted to the fact that she needed to do something um, and to change her ways. Um, we all need to walk the talk more. I'm, I'm the only one in my foundation who uses paper, and my young colleagues look at me in dismay. And I'm the head of the foundation, you know, and I still need the paper to work on, you know. And I, 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 it's very hard to change your habits, you know. And I love giving presents to my grandchildren. I don't need these presents and the wrapping of them and all the rest of it. You know, we all have to think about the steps we can take. Um, uh, I heard one story in a university I was in recently where the bins in the rooms were removed. So no room has a bin anymore. Not a bad idea. Because when there are bins there, we all throw lots of paper into the bins and it's easy. You know, so it's, it's adjustments that we can all make. And that's my challenge. But I think more than that, you can become part of the climate justice movement in a big way in LSE. I know LSE. I know what you're about. And I know you can do it. Yeah. Well, I think on that point, I'm going to have to draw proceedings to a close. I mean, we've, we've heard a, a wonderfully ambitious argument built around what, what I think is a socially progressive concept of climate justice. And I think it's an argument that's built on an extraordinary depth of experience. Um, you know, our speaker has had not just amongst c community groups all around the world, but at the highest levels of the international system. And she's left us, as we just heard, with the with the cry, really, that the ball is in our court. So I hope there's something we can all take away from it. But before you do go, can I ask you to join me again in thanking our speaker, Mary Robinson. Thank you.